Retail Revolution, a unique podcast that features in-depth conversations with guest experts in omni-channel retailing with myriad perspectives, technology, consumer engagement, data analytics, merchandising, and more. We pay special attention to current socio-political issues and challenges and their implications on fashion retail, as well as opportunities to innovate and rethink retail's future. Visit RetailRevolutionPodcast.com for more information, including full transcripts, and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Retail Revolution Podcast. Retail Revolution is produced by Joshua Williams and hosted by Christopher Lacey. Both are assistant professors in the Fashion Management Graduate Program at Parsons School of Design. Paul Kweku Akrofi is the founder and CEO of Real People's Company, a Ghanaian design and manufacturing brand that currently produces quality bags and accessories in Accra. With a passionate belief that quality comes from Africa, Paul uses a creative mix of locally sourced materials to create forward-looking designs that are locally inspired and globally oriented. Through his leadership and enthusiasm to create dignified and meaningful jobs for Africa's youth, Paul serves as a business training coach in partnership with the Impact Hub Accra, and is providing local tailors with skill sets and jobs through his contracts, which would have been outsourced internationally. Being a true revolutionary, he is also a member and alumni of the Global Shapers community of the World Economic Forum and currently heads the Ghana Committee for Sustainable Fashion in partnership with Fashion Revolution in Accra. Today, Paul speaks with me about the power of developing economies and the evolution of sustainable manufacturing. I'm Christopher Lacey, and this is Retail Revolution Podcast. Hello, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. It's good to hear from you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I have to tell you, I've emailed it to you, I've told it to you, is I am so excited to have this conversation with you for so <laughs> many reasons. And I feel like I'm going to get a ton of knowledge as well. And being able to share just information between each other and for the listeners, it's going to be a blast. Likewise, likewise, Chris. I mean, I've been a fan of the show since it's inception like you rightly said before i've listened to almost every episode so, <laughs> <laughs> so it is an absolute pleasure to be on here um, you guys are doing a fantastic job yeah we're going to talk about you really quick and i would love for our listeners to i know i talked about the things that you're doing in ghana right now but i'd like for you to kind of put some more color into that what have you been doing how did you get to this point of doing it and why has it been important for your career trajectory yes so my story has been quite interesting. It hasn't been the linear path that I, I thought it would be initially. So I studied computer science at school. I narrowed down to information technology, and then I did a BSc in multimedia. So the plan was actually to go into advertising and branding because I was passionate about creativity. And honestly, the other thing was to go into the army as well. So uh, <laughs> that's something people don't know about me. Because, yeah, because my family was just all army, just people who had careers in the army, and I was really excited about that, and design as well. I guess I just, you know, I was always trying to figure out how do I fuse the two. Um, well, you could have designed I, new <laughs> uniforms for the army. I know, right? That would have been an interesting <laughs> path to take. <laughs> the army didn't happen. Yeah, the army didn't happen. And then I decided that let me pursue this passion for design and creating interesting products that got me excited. So in high school, a couple of friends and I just started printing t-shirts 
because I was drawing and I was sketching people like the designs and they're like, it would be really cool to have this on a t-shirt. And so I did that. But then I went to secondary school and the problem with secondary school was you're not allowed to. So we have uniforms. And so there was a certain dress code you had to adhere to. And so people couldn't really purchase the designs that we're making on t-shirts. And we decided to start with bags. And that's what actually started the journey of RPC, of us designing bags and accessories. And so initially it was my name and the other person who I started with, he was called Ronnie and I was Paul. And that's why you have like the RPC. So RPC stuck and people actually calling me RPC back in high school. <laughs> I went on to university. <laughs> and I think right now, if you actually meet someone from my high school, they probably wouldn't remember my name. They just thought, oh, RPC. Oh, yeah, 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 RPC. Yeah, that's, that's. <laughs> so that developed. So after university, I decided to take that a little more seriously. And the time was ripe as well because Ghana had just come to a point where we were, let's just say there was just a crop of people who believe that we could offer more to the world instead of just being consumers um, of whatever was brought over here. And so there was just a wave of people coming from the diaspora who were looking for quality products and we just have the sense of pride of being African and being Ghanaian as well. And that was just a time where I looked at the products over here and I felt like, you know, most of the things that were made here were just made as a show of patriotism, right? There was no effort into quality, into consistency, and a lot of things that were made here were just kind of sold as touristy, if I could put it like that, like touristy products. Mm. And so we were really struggling to sell the Made in Ghana brand. And it was for good reason as well, because these things just weren't attractive. And probably because if you've grown up in Ghana, then you've seen these things your whole life and you realize that nothing had changed over a really long time. And so you found people, I mean, a certain demographic who wanted to get cool looking products, they would always buy brands from outside, they would go for the, the Nikes and the famous brands that would see in the music videos. And I just sort of grew up thinking, I don't know, but I think we can make this over here. I think we can create exciting products for ourselves. And just basically because I saw talent all around me, I saw tailors and artisans that you could take things to and they could hit almost an exact replica for you. And so I was like, well, why don't we create an original then? And then brand it properly and just figure out how to create something that we could all be proud of. And so that just, for me, that was the starting point for my journey for RPC. And I jumped wholly, <laughs> I jumped wholly into it after university. Well, I did spend some time in a marketing company for a while. I did some branding and marketing just about a year for my national service. And then after I was done with that, they partnered with me to start the brand. And then that's the journey of RPC. So over the years, we've been making bags and accessories. And it's been quite an interesting journey because we set out to accomplish a task, which was for us just to show that quality could come from this place, right? We could create products that would last long, that would be stylish, that would um, just evoke a sense of pride wherever you took it to. And so, and that's why for us, we said build here goes anywhere, right? You could create a product here in Ghana and it could compete anywhere in the world. And it could just also carry that sense of this is coming from a part of the world where you don't expect things like this um, to come from. So that was the vision and that's how we started with RPC. Over the years, we evolved. We realized there were different needs and challenges around us that we had to solve. And then we kind of changed our strategies from time to time to sort of deal with the, with the challenges that were coming up. And there were, there were challenges because there was a reason why a certain level of quality and consistency wasn't coming from this space. And so we realized that we had to backtrack a bit, we can turn into some sort of a social enterprise, train artisans over here to produce quality in a consistent way and all of that. And that's been, it's a, it's a pretty long story, but that's been, that's a summary of it so far. 
Right. What I want to understand from that is you said something that's really important, which is the idea that most Ghanaians, they were very used to the product they were seeing. So, and there was the desire to buy outside of Ghana. And, yes. and this is probably, this is true of many different countries, especially countries where I would say there are times that they have their manufacturing processes are exploited. So there is this kind mm -hmm. of idea that what is being produced from there isn't as good as what's being produced somewhere else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. How did you navigate that? Yeah. So for us, to be honest with you, Chris, for I think in Africa, it really is an identity issue that we struggle with. It is the truth. And the roots go a little further back than we probably would like to acknowledge because it stems from just a sense of just not being good enough with what we're able to do, right? Mm -hmm. I think it comes from colonialism and just being able to like shed off our identities and losing our history and sometimes even just feeling our culture was inferior. And so that has just seeped into a lot of things that we do. Like up till now, to be honest with you, up till now, there are a lot of people, if you put like a Ghanaian-made product, which was equally as good as one made in Europe and America, like a consumer might readily go for the brand that's made outside because they feel like they can't trust the one that was made here. It really is a struggle that we're trying to solve. And to be honest with you, though, because that's the issue, a lot of people have taken up the challenge and are solving that in very creative ways. And so then figuring out, really understanding what it means to build a brand and um, what it means to carry your values strongly and communicate that clearly. We're building a sense of pride to who we are and what we are capable of. And also just reconnecting with our history and with our stories as well. So that, and just rediscovering the value that we were told it wasn't important, right? And it cuts across in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you'd have people who live in Ghana and can't even speak their local language because they feel like, well, pfft, what impact has it had on me? And, and yet you lose so much of your identity um, when you go down that route. And so, it really has a long and deep history and it takes a conscious effort to decide to handle that and tackle that because their impacts, their repercussions are, are serious. Yeah. There's, there's so much that sits at this intersection of design, product development, manufacturing, the fashion industry, retail, when it pertains to and I actually shouldn't even call Ghana a developing country. It has great economic power or is moving in that direction. But I would say looking at Africa as a whole and understanding that China is putting money into Africa and its infrastructures because they understand that they want to do manufacturing in Africa. The U.S. is doing the same thing when it comes to technology. And we know what it looks like when a developed country starts wanting to do manufacturing in one that is not so developed. I mean, we've seen it. It's happened over and over again. What role do you want to play and what role are you playing right now to make sure that we're going to protect the country of Ghana from this? And I actually want to bring up something that quite interesting mm. was China had gone into Cameroon yeah. and offered to build them a soccer stadium. Okay. Cameroon is oil rich and it hasn't phenomenal natural resources. So they agreed to it. And so now Cameroon has a soccer stadium that is being built or it's actually completed. And I've never seen a soccer or football match happen in Cameroon. Right. Right. But they're now in this contract of giving away natural resources, right? So mm -hmm. I'm asking you this question to go, all right, 
for what you're doing, the initiatives you're doing through Real Peoples and other things, do you feel like you're able to kind of protect Ghana's future? Yeah, I mean, so we are in in some ways. It is, to be honest with you, the conversations have just begun just because of certain, let's just say certain revelations that have come to light quite recently for us. And so because of that, so like I'm a part of the Global Shapers community, we've been having um, constant dialogues. So we have these things called Accra Dialogue, where we invite policy stakeholders to come and just basically speak on different issues concerning some of these trade issues you've spoken about and all of the impact of these things on us. And basically what's just happened is through education, we've realized that we just need to get a little more enlightened and take a step towards speaking to our politicians and just being more proactive in, in asking for understanding of what some of these decisions and choices that they make, like the impact will have on us. Because to be honest with you, for a very long time, the youth haven't really engaged in politics because there's just this perception. And I think it's it's not just in Ghana, probably it's also in the world that it's far removed from us. They're just a bunch of old men who have ingrained in their ways. And so they take all these decisions by themselves and we don't know how it affects us and all of these things. But more and more, we're getting very vocal and we're holding them accountable. And so for us at the Global Shapers community, this is what we are doing, right? We have all of these people in different industries that we've brought into the community. And um, we're having these discussions, like I said, and we're basically putting our findings out and saying, hey, look, these are the possible repercussions of some of these decisions that these guys are taking. And do we want to go down this route? And it's yielding results also because of social media. And so we're able to put some of these findings out and make a lot of noise about it and say, hey, look, we're not interested in this choice or in this sort of deal you guys want to make. Yeah, and then also through fashion revolution, part of what we do is that we're educating people who are in various industries as to basically about their rights, right? And how to ask for proper compensation for the work they do and basically just how to look at the space we are in and to figure out, okay, look, is this deal or is this sort of opportunity? Well, is this really going to be beneficial to us? Because we've had situations where certain groups have come I, I don't want to name any but you have certain groups don't do that the space to, <laughs> to set up to set up initiatives just because they're they want to come and exploit whether it was a free trade zone or it was an export um, tax benefit or something um over here and then not really stuck to so to also add on to the tag of being ethical and being sustainable but not really doing those things properly as they would have done elsewhere and just taking advantage of the local people. And so these all, for us right now, it really is an education thing because to be honest with you, we're also in a spot where sometimes people feel like they don't have a choice but to accept whatever it is that's coming to them because at least it's something. And that's the challenge that we're tackling. And also stepping up to the challenge by coming up with initiatives ourselves to tackle these things. Um, and so that you're not looking for somebody elsewhere to come and save you, but we are solving the problems for ourselves and looking at ways in which it would benefit us, not just us right now, but also future generations, right? So I don't know if that's a long answer, but <laughs> that's how we've been looking at it collectively, yeah. I'm thinking about what you've just said, and it brings me to want to talk with you about how would you advise a designer, someone who's where you were before, yeah, and they're in a country that thinking of the four pillars of sustainability, 
that human capital aspect and mm -hmm. that social aspect are subject to the arbitrage strategy. So the exploitation of the people there. Yeah. What would be their first steps? Like, I know for you, it, it seems like when you told the story, like it kind of came to you quite easily, but it sounded like, know. I have to be honest, you made it sound very easy. So, <laughs> well, well in hind hindsight, it's 2020, but <laughs> it wasn't that <laughs> So th that's great then, because we have people listening from all over the world. And what were the, the little steps that you took? I mean, obviously you can't boil an ocean, so you take things off in pieces. What did you yeah. kind of do and what advice would you give to someone? Yeah, so, I mean, with every situation, right, I, I mean, the best route to take is low-hanging fruits, right? So just figure out what space you're in. And for me personally, let me just say, I had to connect back to my values and what I felt like, because essentially I, I was looking at sustainability and, and the proponents of sustainability and what the values are in sustainability are something that I connect deeply with as a person. And as a result of that, I realized that it wasn't just, yes, I wanted to create exciting products and well-made products and all of that. And that was set into my business strategy. That was set into my vision for the brand right from the start, which is to make a product that would last long term. And so then the person could be confident that they could use this product and it wouldn't break down. But I hadn't really, really figured out the human side of things, the human capital side of things. And so basically in terms of compensating work as well, we come from a culture where we bargain and bargain deeply for everything. <laughs> we bargain to the last city. And so, unfortunately, I think I came with that mentality as well, that I was going to get the best possible product, best possible price for the production of my, of my products. And it took a lot of self-reflection just to realize that, okay, you know what? These guys can do a good job. And so if they're doing a good job and you're selling quality, from Africa, then I think that that quality should cut across every single thing you're doing in the company. And maybe even the way you're treating your workers, how much you're paying them, the living wage, how well are they doing? They, sometimes they might even say, and because, you know, we live in a culture where we bargain for everything, they expect you to bargain. So sometimes they start from a, almost a ridiculous price point, right? But mm -hmm. to be honest with you, even sometimes the price point they started from, when I looked at it properly, I figured this makes sense. This is really what the cost of living in Ghana. I don't see how this person could do better for themselves if they charge any less for wow. what I'm asking for them. And so it really took a bit of self, no, not a bit, like a lot of self-reflection on my values and saying, look, going forward, this is what I want to do. And then also just when I realized that, first of all, my products were doing well because people were getting excited about it. I looked at the opportunity and said, well, what could I do on the corporate side? And what was happening on the corporate side was that people were going outside um, to get products made, you know, for their brand activations and for their Christmas giveaways and for their conferences, et cetera. And I was like, we can do this here. So why don't we just do designs that can show that this is a possibility and incorporate local materials and pitch these so that we constantly have a steady stream of work for our tailors and artisans. And these offers, when you're doing corporate work, it's a lot more than when you were doing the B2C. And so it was quite exciting to see how that developed and also for them also to build their skill set, you know, through training and just exposing them to different quality checks and controls and just seeing how all of that came together into working with them and building good relationships with them as well. And as a result, because they knew that they were going to be fairly compensated for 
what they were doing. So my advice, it's a long one, but my advice is low-hanging low fruits, right? You say something a lot in this podcast, and I think I'll just say that back. It's like, be kind, right? Be considerate, have empathy for the people that you work with. And um, I think when you look at it through that lens and you ask yourself, if there was a person sitting on the other side of, of, of the table, how would I want to be treated? Would I want to be treated this way? I think that informs, that would really inform your decision as to how you treat the people who make stuff for you. Yeah. I want to ask you, as you've gone through that whole process and thought that out, and thank you for sharing that with our listeners. When you think about the world stage, where you are in in Ghana, your mission, and you go home at night and you're thinking about the next day, what is something that goes through your head that you go, this is a misconception that the rest of the world has about Ghana, and I want to change that narrative. Do you feel like there's a misconception that's out there? Yeah, I mean, I yes, there, there is a misconception. There are a number of them, but the ones that really come to mind <laughs> is to show that, you know, it's just some, some, some of them are quite ridiculous, but I, right. I think slowly, yeah, yeah, just very ridiculous, but... I think slowly that's, well, at least I hope that's changing with exposure and access to information and all of that. If people are actively looking for information about different places, they can find that, right? But I think what's one of the misconceptions is that we don't have much to offer the world except like, I don't know, our culture or something. But I beg to differ because a lot of creative, at least in the fashion space, there are a lot, and not just Ghana, right? Let me just say Africa because more and more we're starting to think of ourselves as one people and, and starting to operate like that and it's important for us to do so because then it it's only coming together and having just that united force that united face that we'll be taken a lot more seriously right and so the misconceptions are we don't have in terms of what we have to offer like the creativity and all of that and that's not true there's a lot of amazing things that people are doing here on the continent and sometimes you don't hear about it or it doesn't really come out because Unfortunately, people don't have that many opportunities to to be discovered or to put your work out. And so outside, whereas you have like, let's say a lot of fellowships and you have opportunities for like mentorship and grants and all these things, they are far spread and wide between Africa, right? It's only a certain group of people who often can access some of these opportunities and be able to put out their work. And some of them, you've heard of them, right? And that's why we tend to celebrate people who step out and sort of make a mark, right? So you have David Ajay, architect, and we have Virgil Abloh, who's Ghanaian, and Mimi mm -hmm. Planche. So we tend to celebrate all of these designers who make an impact because we kind of say, so you know that space that you hardly think about? Well, all of these guys are coming from there. So imagine what else is, is on a continent yet to be discovered, right? Um, mm -hmm. We're not just about hunger and starvation and the one fly, that's what the child's mouth that you see from the NGO campaign that's you that's uh, right. feed the child and save the starving child like you know that unfortunately it is part of the story but it's not the whole story africa is a very diverse place right with multiple stories happening over here and there's a lot of good things happening on the continent and if people pay attention they will see and um, be thoroughly amazed what's happening here so yeah so there are misconceptions but i think that it just takes a person to be intentional about doing their research and they will discover some pretty amazing things that are happening on the continent. Yeah. Do you think you've, and for me, I think having you on here and having this conversation for me, even when I said earlier, was really special to me because for me, it was very, very difficult navigating the fashion space and the executive space mm -hmm. as a black male. 
I did not have other black male mentor. I didn't have that guidance in this space. It came from other yeah. people, but there weren't other me's in the space really. And we're very far and few between. And even doing this podcast, it's almost difficult for me to, to find <laughs> other black men. And I want to know, do you feel as though you found your space and your voice to create the change needed in this industry? Well, <laughs> I know. I feel I, like I'm I, Oprah I, I, right I, I, now. I, I, Let's I, I, just say that. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm laughing because I feel like the sentiments are the same, even though it's a little, it's a little different over here, but it's the, the effects that it, it has, right, which is feeling a little bit isolated is still the same. Because for me, or, or at least in Africa, traditionally, so fashion design, well, I, I think we're starting to see it now as fashion design. And because of, and initially, it's always been seen as a, it was not a respected space, let me put it like that. The arts and crafts are not respected in Africa, just to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. And so it always has been a, a struggle if you're creative to pursue your creative passions because then people are looking at you and your family is looking at you like do you want to die are you sure you don't want to make money in life why are you going down this path (laughs) be a doctor be an engineer and i think especially over here people sort of think it's a frivolous thing sort of space to get into and also traditionally it's always been reserved sort of for people who haven't pursued education properly let me put it like that it's been an Mm -hmm. informal sector right and so you have the dressmakers and you have the tailors and you have the artisans and she's in her small shop or under a shed somewhere making clothes, making custom clothes. And that's how people have traditionally have seen the space and still see the space up to now, right? Up to now when my when my mom tells somebody like I went to fashion school, you're like, but why? They thought I'd be in a bank somewhere or something. And so I came up in that space and there weren't too many people, too many mentors to look up to. There were just a few people in the space and they themselves were just trying to establish the industry and it's still in its infancy to be honest with you it's a growing space just because in the last couple of years especially in the last three or four years um, that's just when fashion schools have started establishing themselves probably in ghana and so they're about let's say even even you're going to about like well-respected fashion schools there's just probably like three or four in ghana at the moment who are churning out like students who are doing really interesting and groundbreaking work right and so it's in their work that people are now starting to see the value of fashion design as a good space to be in, as a respected area to be in. And so then looking at you like your school dropout because you're a fashion designer, or you couldn't do anything else you know, with yourself. And so now you're so enclosed for people sort of thing. But you're starting mm-hmm. to pay attention to the creativity and innovation that designers who are well-trained in their craft are putting out and then sort of thinking about the local industry and figuring out how to revamp it and revitalize it and rebrand and repackage it so that people are excited about it. Because in lieu of that, people don't realize how much it's costing us as a country, right? Because then if people are not making well-made clothes and yet you have people who want to wear well-made clothes, they're going to go to the stores and buy imported products, right? And that's happening all over the place where you go into a boutique and almost Everything over there is important. There's nothing made locally. Whereas, you know, Taylor, the artisan on the street is reserved for like occasions where you need an African styled clothing or an African print clothing and nobody cares too much about the details. And so then you go to your street side corner seamstress to get that done for you. So 
But then you go to the malls and the shops and the boutiques and when you want something fancy and classy, you're definitely going to pick something from outside because those are the only options available to you. And so that's a lot of foreign exchange, right? That's money that's leaving the country and all of that. And so this new crop of fashion designers coming up and now creating designs that are really fashionable and exciting for us. And the boutiques are starting to change. You're starting to see clothes in the stores. The secondhand market has been questioned over and over again as the impact is having on our local industry. And that's that's a really big issue for us because, I mean, I don't know if you heard the story of Cantamanto, but it's where a lot of fast fashion products that gets discarded in the West all get dumped over here. And it's been one of the major challenges we have to deal with as designers, just trying to figure out how do we work with this? How do we solve this problem and how can it be tackled properly so is that what's next for rpc (laughs) well (laughs) yeah that's a big project yeah it it is a big project and there there are different people who are tackling it currently in terms of bags and accessories i've really been wondering in what way to approach it but for clothes in terms of apparel yeah there are some creative ideas that we have but we're going to test them out and see how that goes but to be honest with you there are a number of local brands starting up or finding creative ways to repurpose and upcycle the clothes that are in the market, the secondhand clothes. But even that, it's still not enough, right? Because you should check out the figures online, but the sheer volume of clothes that get brought over here, it's, it's quite staggering. And we really have to figure out very creative and sustainable ways of tackling that so that it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. It just doesn't end up clogging our seas and our drains and landfills which is something we're fighting against so yeah i think you and i will definitely have to have more conversations on air off air because to your point i mean we can't treat any part of our earth as the dumping ground so we, we really have to work quickly to get this figured out yes 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 So how can our listeners stay up to date with what you're doing? All right. Well, I was quite enjoying this. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, I know. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely have to do this again. So they can connect with me on LinkedIn. So Paul Akrofi on LinkedIn. So you can just send me a message on LinkedIn and I can basically share with you what I'm up to. And then you can also just go to our website, which is www.rpcdesign.co. Fantastic. And then we've been a bit slow on our social media pages, but we're going to get that active again this year. Last year hit us <laughs> a bit a little badly, so we slowed down. Had to rethink a couple of things <laughs> in the direction we're going, yeah. It's okay. I feel like everybody kind of had to do that with social media, so you're fine. You're right with yeah. most of us. Uh, <laughs> right. And most of us weren't doing anything that we wanted to show, so you're all right. Paul, thank you so much for being on today. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm looking forward to conversations in the future and seeing how we can really work together between Retail Revolution Podcast and what you're doing at RPC to create some change out there, and and I'm looking forward to it. That will be amazing, Christopher. That will be amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Thank you, too. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retail Revolution. A very special thank you to everyone who has helped to make this podcast possible. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit our show page at retailrevolutionpodcast.com and click on the donate link. Our theme music was composed by Spencer Powell. Be well and stay tuned for our next episode.